Resurrection Day. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Even if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you probably know that today is one of the most significant days in the Christian calendar. It's the most significant day because if this didn't happen, this being Jesus rising from the grave and conquering death, if that really didn't happen, then none of this matters. But if it did, everything changes. It must change. That was certainly the case for those who walked with Jesus, those who gave us these accounts of his life that we find in the Bible and in places like the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning, on Resurrection Sunday, I wanted to turn to one such changed life. Luke, like other Gospel writers, has given us a selective history of Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't tell us everything that Jesus ever did or ever said, but he did tell us all we needed to know. And he did tell us about the progression of his life all the way up to his death at the hands of the Roman authorities and then beyond his death to what happened afterwards. And that's where we turn this morning. You see, I do want to talk about the resurrection, but not the actual account of the resurrection that we, we read earlier from the book of Matthew as we began our service this morning. No, I'd like to talk about some of the aftermath of the resurrection. And I'd like to talk about the aftermath of the resurrection because all of us here are part of that aftermath. And what I mean by that is the same question, the same questions that plagued those followers of Jesus in the first century plague us today. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And if he did, what now? What does that mean? Those are crucial questions for you to be wrestling with this morning as we all wrestle with God's word this morning together. So before I read it, I want to give you just kind of a setup of, of where we are in the context of the book. As you know, at Ascension, normally we read through books, and so if we are reading through the book of, of Luke, preaching through the book, you would know what just came before, but let me just catch you up to speed real quick. As we come to this passage that I'm about to read in Luke's account, it is late in the evening on Easter Sunday. The sadness and despair and confusion of the day prior, of the Saturday after Jesus was crucified, has been replaced with, with this hopeful confusion about what the day's events have looked like so far. You see, the morning started, Easter morning started with an empty tomb with two women going to 
anoint Jesus' body, and instead there's no body there. And then Mary Magdalene claimed to see Jesus, that Jesus who was supposed to be in the tomb spoke to her, and then, and then Peter said that he saw him too, and then two disciples in despair were walking back home to Emmaus, and, and then Jesus apparently walked with them, and then broke bread with them, and then they said they saw him too, and now they're all together. All of those people, along with other followers of Jesus, the disciples, other women who had been part of his band of followers, they're sharing stories. They're, they're asking questions of one another and they're, they're trying to piece all of this together. And alongside of all of this, this nervous excitement is, is fear. The doors are locked in this room where they're sharing stories. The doors are locked because the Jews weren't happy that the body of the one that they crucified wasn't where it was supposed to be. And it must be these followers' fault. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. The evening of Easter Sunday. The nervous excitement about what might have happened. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Let this scene let the scene grip you. Luke records, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and and they thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and and ate it before them and then he said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
So we work through this great post-resurrection scene. I want you to see three wonderful realities this morning and meditate on them with me for just a few minutes. And the first reality is this. Jesus wants to deal with your doubts. Jesus wants to deal with your doubts. Do you ever have doubts? About who Jesus is? About what He's done? About what He's doing in your life? I do. We all do. And it's a word that comes up immediately in this incredible scene. Verse 38, Jesus comes and he says to them, why the doubts? Perhaps it's surprising to us that this would be the question that he would ask of his followers and that their response would be doubts. After all, we may think in our own, as C.S. Lewis termed, we might think in our own chronological snobbery, that these were pre-scientific simpletons, right? These first century followers of Jesus. They probably just believed. We as modern individuals, we pride ourselves at times over our skepticism, don't we, right? We are a doubting people. We question, we scrutinize. And so if a dead guy is going to show up in our house, yeah, we're going to question, we're going to doubt. But the ancient mindset of these Jewish men and women, it's not all that far from us. It's not all that far from us in the surprising nature of Jesus' appearance. You see, they didn't expect it either. It didn't fit into their worldview. Sure, the Jews believed in resurrection, but resurrection for them was at the end of time. It was not for one isolated individual and then history would continue to roll on. The resurrection was at the very end when Yahweh would come and make all things right and all would be raised. And so when his When Jesus appeared, the disciples didn't say to him, they didn't respond as one writer says, hey, you did it. No, they were struggling to believe the unbelievable. And as they're wrestling with this, bam, Jesus is there. He's standing there. Now, how a physical and yet glorified resurrection body works, we, we don't know, but Jesus is there. John tells us that the doors were locked. Luke doesn't say he sauntered in the door, but he's just there. And he says, peace to you. Now, can you imagine? I like to imagine Jesus saying peace to you, kind of, kind of with a smirk, knowing that Jesus saying peace to you would bring anything but peace to those disciples in that room. Now they were shocked and they were scared out of their minds, but of course this was more than a greeting that Jesus saying. 
This was a proclamation. It was a statement of reality for those who knew and believed in him, as Paul will tell the Ephesian church. He himself, Jesus, is our peace. But they weren't thinking about that in that moment. They were trying to wrap their brains around what was happening and to process all that they had heard that was now standing before them. Listen to this quote I read this week by Pastor Tim Keller, a name that many of you know. He says this about this passage of Luke. He says, Luke is saying to you across the years, you have a scientific worldview that doesn't allow for this to happen. But we had our own worldviews that also didn't allow for this to happen. This was as unexpected for us as for you. And so the bottom line is, we're all in the same boat. You and I here this morning, those men and women in that locked room, scared and confused in Jerusalem in the first century, we're all in the same boat. Doubts. Unbelief. And so the question is, How is Jesus going to handle that? How is Jesus going to handle our doubts? Two words. With compassion and with clarity. Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why the doubts? We hear that and we ask, Jesus, do you really not know? Of course He knew, which is again why I like to imagine Jesus asking these questions, not with a scowl. Why don't, why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? No, but with a smile, with a smirk. Jesus is not frustrated. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame, Psalm 103, verse 14 says, And yes, sure, he's had his moments with these followers. The misunderstandings by them of of his mission. The fact that they were sleeping rather than supporting him in prayer. But here, here is compassion. Here, Jesus acknowledges the struggle. He acknowledges the doubts. And rather than withholding what would encourage these men and women, what does he do? He says, confirm it with your senses. See my hands, my feet, touch me, see me, I'm here, it's me. And Luke records the disciples are stunned. They don't do anything. (laughs) I mean, they're frozen. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he brings further clarity. There's an interesting phrase here in Luke 24. It says, they disbelieved for joy. What is Luke saying when he says that? They disbelieved for joy. Well, in our modern vernacular, this is too good to be true. Like they're just dumbfounded. They're excited, but this is too good to be true. And so Jesus makes another move away from the notion that he wasn't real, away from the notion that he was a hallucination, away from the notion that he was a 
an image in their mind away from the notion that he was a ghost. And he says, have you anything to eat? Don't you love that? Jesus chowing down on a piece of fish as if everything was right again, as if everything was normal. In his compassion, he wanted to bring about clarity. I'm the same guy that has eaten fish with you hundreds of times before. It's me. So what does this mean for you and I in the 21st century? What compassion and clarity does Jesus offer for us? Well, the same. The same compassion and clarity that's given here in a different way, of course. We're not locked in a room two days after his death. Two sentences from the book that we're reading together as a church, that wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly about the heart of Christ. Two sentences have have lodged themselves in my heart. Where the writer in that book says, and I've quoted these before to you, I think I did the first night of that study, Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So when we think about our doubts, friends, when we think about our struggle to believe at times, maybe that's you who sit here in unbelief and skepticism at this whole thing. Or maybe it's you who know and love Jesus and have for years and yet you struggle with him at times. You struggle with his ways. You struggle to feel his presence. The reminder that Jesus wants you to hear this morning is that he can deal with your doubts. He wants to deal with your doubts. He's not afraid of your doubts. And I want especially our young people to hear this this morning. Some of you are about to graduate from high school. You're about to go off, some of you, to schools, off to jobs where your faith is going to be challenged and tested in a way that it hasn't before. You're going to have questions. You're going to have doubts. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your questions. Yours is not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. And so find someone. Come to me if you can't find someone who will engage you on those questions, who will help address those doubts. Each of us here this morning must wrestle with the historical resurrection the crux of our religion. With the fact that if you were making up a messianic resurrection story, this isn't the way that you do it. 
You wouldn't have women be the first witnesses. You wouldn't have a bunch of followers scared as can be, locked in a room somewhere, flooded with doubts themselves. You got to wrestle with the fact that this was an event that was testified by hundreds who saw him. You got to wrestle with the fact that the men and women in that room changed the world. And they willingly went to their deaths believing a lie? No, believing something they had seen. John begins his letter to the churches. That which it was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify it. We proclaim to you the eternal life. One pastor writes this, most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, that the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened. That's not completely the case. Though there is evidence, the resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It is not enough to simply believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of a church the birth of this church brothers and sisters jesus really did rise from the dead research it yourself wrestle with your doubts search the scriptures and let him meet you there and that's where we go next that's the second thing i want you to see this morning from this passage And it's this, Jesus reveals himself in his word. Jesus wants to deal with your doubts, yes. But Jesus also reveals himself in his word. Two things happen next in this story. Jesus, of course, had revealed himself to all these present through his life. But more than that, he says, I've already shown myself to you. You see, Jesus gives his disciples here in Luke 24 the key to understanding the Bible, the key to understanding all of the Old Testament, a key that unlocks all the stories, all the songs, all the things that the good Jewish children had long been taught to sing and to know. And the key is himself. If we were to back up to verse 27, he did this substantially with the men on the road to Emmaus. Verse 27 of Luke 24 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. To be on that road, To hear the living word, the word who is flesh, speak and show about how everything in the Bible is about him. It's still true today, and he says it to the followers that were gathered there. So when we open this up, when we open this up in Genesis, we see that he is the word of creation at the beginning of it all. He is the seed of the woman promised 
after the fall into sin. He is the ark of Noah, a refuge for all from the flood of God's wrath. We turn to Exodus and we see that he is the Passover lamb slain for us. He is the new and better Moses, the one who will lead his people out of bondage. He is the manna, the bread from heaven sustaining his people in the wilderness. He is the living water flowing from the rock that Moses struck. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet greater than Moses. In Leviticus, and numbers. He is the great high priest, the mediator between God and man. He is holiness. He is perfect righteousness. In Joshua, he is the commander of the Lord's army. In Ruth, he is the loving, tender, kinsman, redeemer who comes to the widow and the hopeless. In Samuel and Kings, he is the anointed one, the promised king of Israel come to reign. In Psalms, he is the shepherd who leads and guides his people. In Proverbs, he is wisdom. Wisdom incarnate, the wisdom revealed to Solomon. In the prophets, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the suffering servant. He is the lover and husband of an unfaithful people. He is Jesus. And he meets us in his word, all over his word. So what relevance is that for us? Well, it means for one that you're in the right place this morning. You're exactly where you need to be. For the skeptic on top of the resurrection, the beauty of Jesus seen all throughout these ancient documents documents that preceded him by hundreds of years is his further evidence of who he is. If you just look and see it. And for those who know and love him this morning, it's a reminder that we meet him here in his word. Yes, on the Lord's day. Yes, in this moment. But also as you sit in the mornings with this Bible in your lap. This is how we know him. This is how we grow in him. And so the application for skeptics and for those who love him alike is get in his way. Look for him. Look for him here that he might show himself to you. And that's the second thing that we see is that he has to show himself to you. Right? You see that in this passage this morning, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so in, in humility, in consciousness of our need, but intentional in our desire to seek and to know we come to him. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus' own words, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus meets his people in his word. One more thing I want us to meditate on for just a moment, and then we'll close. Jesus calls you to be his witnesses. 
It's the last thing we see in this passage. Jesus calls you to be His witnesses. There are some things that we, once we see them, we can't unsee them, right? It's a phrase we often use. I can't unsee that. Many of you know, who know me, know that I I love golf. You know that my wife is from Augusta, Georgia, the mecca of golf. I've only been to two golf tournaments in my life. One was the Farmers Open, which was held at Torrey Pines Golf Course on the cliffs outside of San Diego. Gorgeous course. Actually played it once. But then I went to Augusta National in Augusta, Georgia, the home of the Masters, a place that it's as close to heaven as we're going to get, I think. <laughs> it's pristine. It's beautiful. It's almost perfect. And once you see it, once you see it in person, nothing will ever measure up. It's kind of a silly example of my own silly heart and love for golf. But once these disciples, followers, saw Jesus risen from the grave, glorified, with scars in His body, there's no way There's no way that they go back to what was. The gospel accounts turn into the Acts of the Apostle, which turn into Paul's missionary journeys, which turn into Paul's letters, which turn into the early church, which turn into the rise and spread of Christianity all over the Roman Empire, which brings us to today and to God's agenda for us. God's agenda for us, people of God, is not simply to be happy, to be comfortable, to live the American dream. It's that repentance and forgiveness would be preached to the whole world. God's agenda is about reclaiming for Himself a people who turn their back on Him. It's about restoring for Himself a creation that was marred by sin and brokenness. It's about redeeming a world and a people in order to make it right again. And we are not spectators in this. We are witnesses. We are participants in the work of redemption. Through our love and our light, through our words and our deeds, through our proclamation that He has risen and everything has changed. We want to make His name great. We want to make His fame great. Huge, because He is worthy. There is no one worthy but Him. And the great promise of the Scripture, Jesus said it to His disciples. He says it again here, that He doesn't leave us alone in this endeavor. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Jesus calls you to be his witnesses. And so as you have opportunity, tell of what he has done. 
Speak because it matters to you, because it matters to the world, because nothing could matter more. Brothers and sisters, deal with your doubts by crying to Jesus. He wants to deal with them. Look to his word. He's all over it. That you might see him there and testify to what you find, that his name and his fame might cover this earth like the waters cover the sea. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible account, this incredible interaction, Lord Jesus, that you had with your disciples. It is too good to be true. It is unbelievable. And yet, Father, as we wrestle with it, you give us eyes to see the truth. And so I would pray that you would continue the work that you've begun in each of us. Whether it's a mustard seed of faith that exists here this morning in the hearts of these, whether it's no trace of faith yet, whether it's a faith that's already full and now has just, the sails are even fuller. Father, we, may we go from this place rejoicing that the end is not the end. That death is not the final chapter. But indeed, it's, it's only the beginning because you have, ra- because you have risen from the dead. Father, we give you thanks and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.